0: Uh, This morning I'm going to talk about uh, Siddhartha Gautama, known as the Buddha, and to try to get a sense of um, the world in which he lived and what it was that precipitated um, his breakthrough or his awakening that occurred at about the age of 35. But let's start with a reflection about a difference between Christianity and Buddhism. You're probably all familiar, or at least those of you brought up in a a Christian culture are familiar with the story of Jesus as it is uh, reported four times, essentially, in the four Gospels. And what is, I think, uh, almost certainly the case is that we cannot imagine Christianity as being based exclusively on the doctrines that Jesus taught. In other words, if you went through the New Testament and took out the key ideas, the doctrines, the the teachings as it were, and then put them to one side and then completely forgot about the life of Jesus, it would not be the same thing. You cannot reduce Christianity uh, to a set of uh, theological doctrines, beliefs or views Without seeing them in the context of the man's life. So the Christian um, uh, tradition really makes little separation between what Jesus did, who he was in his society, what happened to him, obviously the crucifixion being. An extraordinarily key moment that the two are somehow intertwined, inextricable, one from the other, the life and the teachings. Now, in Buddhism, that's very different. In some ways, Buddhism um, has somehow forgotten or neglected uh, the life of the man, Siddhartha Gautama and presents Buddhism very much as a a set of doctrines and practices and maybe philosophical ideas. And in fact, I did something similar to that last night when I said that there is these four points that we can distinguish as distinctive about what the Buddha taught in contrast to where he had come from. But I feel that to understand why these ideas are distinctive, we need also to see them in the context of the Buddha's time and his world and in the struggles that he went through in his own life. Now, of course, um, we're all familiar with the legend of the Buddha, of this prince who is raised in these glorious palaces and then one day decides that um, there must be something more than this and he arranges a trip with the blessing of his father to go outside the city walls where he encounters a sick person, an old person, a corpse and a wandering uh, Samana or monk and that then prompts his renunciation and then he does certain spiritual practices and then he becomes the Buddha but the problem with that legend is that it really bears um, no uh, relation to what is either in the earliest texts in the Pali Canon nor what has been subsequently been learned through primarily archaeological um, research into the actual conditions of of life uh, that existed in about 500 BC which was when the Buddha lived. So for example, all of the archaeological digs that have been done in the area where the Buddha is supposed to have grown up have yielded no palaces, no foundations of grand buildings, uh, nothing really. In fact, the most distinctive um, marker or find uh, at that archaeological layer in North India is a particular kind of greyware pottery um, which seemed to have marked a new phase in the culture of that Uh, time in that period, and it appears about 600 BC. But apart from that, shards of broken, grey-glazed pottery, a few coins, they had golden and copper coins, a few rusted old farm implements, a number of beads, and um, uh, a few little conch shells that have been preserved as precious objects there is virtually nothing uh, that remains from the time of the Buddha's life Uh, there was no brick fired, um, there were no kiln fired bricks at that period in India and so all of the building materials, in other words sun-baked brick wood, mud all of these things just disappear so We have to um, think of the Buddha not as growing up in some grandiose palace as is depicted in all of these legends, but probably in just a rather grander mud and wood hut than the other people. The Buddha was certainly not a peasant of just farming the land. He was a member of the nobility and his father was probably the leading figure of the uh, area called Shakya, which was also the name of his clan. And these were people who lived in an area just to the south of uh, Nepal, what is now Nepal, still on the Terai, on the plain, about maybe 80 miles, 100 miles from where the Himalaya begins to rise. Uh, it's difficult to know the exact extent of Shakya, but it probably was built around a single valley with a couple of major clans on either side that seem to have become unified into a, a sort of oligarchic confederacy. An oligarchy is a form of government in which the affairs of the community are. Uh, discussed and regulated by the elders of the different families, a, a simple form of representative government. But at the time of the Buddha's birth, uh, Shakya was no longer an independent political entity. It had become absorbed into the province of Kursala, which was the largest um, uh, kingdom to the north of the Ganges River. If you think of North India, and I'm sure many of you have been there, you can think of the Himalaya in the very far north. Then there's this uh, vast alluvial plain that runs down to the Ganges, the great arterial river that runs west to east across North India. And then south of that you have a rather different landscape that then goes down to central and southern India. The Buddha was born on this alluvial plain. And an alluvial plain is essentially a vast expanse of earth and mud and grass and fields and forests. It's extremely fertile. It's the sediment that has run off Uh, from the mountains and collected in this large flat area and was uh, clearly a place where uh, people could thrive on an agricultural uh, economy. So the the Buddha grew up, or or Siddhartha Gautama, grew up on a plain. It would have been a lot more forested than we would see today if we went to North India, which has been largely cleared of forest and has become rather overpopulated, very densely packed with villages and fields, but not essentially much different from what Siddhartha Gautama as a young man would have experienced. Uh, The economy of Shakya was entirely agricultural. They would have grown um, rice, and barley perhaps, uh, millet, uh, dal, different kinds of lentils, sugarcane. These these would have been the basic crops. But one of the crucial differences um, to most of the market towns and villages on that plain was the fact that running through Kapalavastu, which was the main town in Shakya, was the North Road. And this was the great commercial artery of the day that ran from the south of the Ganges in a, a place called Rajagaha or Rajgir across the Ganges at what is now Patna and then headed north or, or northwest through Kapilavastu to Shravasti which was the capital of Kosala, and where the Buddha would spend most of his life, and then further east still until it reached the border with Gandhara. Gandhara is more or less equivalent to modern Pakistan. But at the time of the Buddha's birth, Gandhara was the easternmost uh, province of the Achaemenid Empire. Now, the Achaemenid Empire was the great power of the day. It was ruled from Persepolis by the emperor Xerxes and it controlled um, an area of land that extended in the west from Egypt right through the Middle East, all of what is now Iraq and Iran. And in the year of the Buddha's birth, the Persian armies were battling to control uh, mainland Greece itself. And in fact, the year of the Buddha's birth coincides with the Battle of um, Thermopylae, where there were, in fact, Indian soldiers fighting in the Persian armies against the Greeks northwest of Athens, I think to understand the Buddha's life one has to see that um, the Indian um, uh, kingdoms were really rather um, lowly political entities just beginning to emerge from uh, confederacies of tribes and clans into uh, monarchies with a capital and a king. But the great um, power lay not there but to the west um, with this extraordinarily powerful empire that uh, spread right across the Middle East, uh, right up to the borders of what we would now call India. And the north road that ran through Kapalavastu, through Shravasti, came to a place called Taxila, which is now near Rawalpindi, uh, in Pakistan, and and that really was the um, uh, the cultural and the political centre that would have dominated uh, the uh, the world of that time and place, and of which the Buddha would certainly have been aware. So, through Kapilavastu, there would have been both trade coming from Persia into India and vice versa as well, of course, as the traffic of ideas. There would have been wandering monks, there would have been scholars, there would have been um, merchants, some of them quite learned. And so being, although Siddhartha Gautama was born in a, in a fairly rural area, and his local economy would have been that of of um, agriculture, he would nonetheless have been exposed to ideas and to goods which would have originated from uh, Persia in the West. And that would have been somehow uh, a sense of his world. Now, the Indians um, of that time in, in, north, in, in the northern Gangetic Plains considered themselves to be Aryans. Now, Aryan um, is a term the Buddha used But he gave it a a very different meaning. We'll come back to that later. But the word Aryan originally refers to uh, uh, um, uh, tribes of people who possibly invaded India about a thousand years before the Buddha's birth who would have come perhaps from the Caucasus somewhere in Central or Eastern Europe. And they brought in the horse they were horse-riding tribes, probably quite violent and quite expansive. And they displaced the, uh, the indigenous peoples of North India, who were Dravidians, in other words, of a darker skin color. Um, and they, more, they either banished those people further south, or they brought them into slavery, We have to remember that, uh, in fact, in the Puranas, some of the earlier Indian texts, the native inhabitants are called the Dasi. And the word in Pali, Dasi, means slave. So the Buddha grew up in a slave community, in a a society that um, uh, owned and used slavery as a means of um, acquiring labor and wealth and so on. And that would have been very normative at the Buddha's time. Now, the Buddha himself, when he's, um, the, the, when he's first, or one, one, one of the very few episodes in the Pali Canon, um, where the Buddha talks about himself, he says that he is a native of Kosala, Kosala being the kingdom to the north, that he is of the lineage of the sun, Gotha which suggests that his community, his family, um, were solar worshippers. They worshipped the sun. They were a solar cult of some kind. Uh, This would have been in keeping with uh, the Brahmanic tradition, uh, the priestly tradition of the Brahmins, um, who in many of the hymns we find in the Vedas, uh, uh, worshipped the sun as the source of life. And throughout his life, um, the Buddha is sometimes referred to as the, as the kinsman of the sun. So there's a sense here, an identification of the Buddha with the sun, with the source of life itself, with light and with warmth. And then he says that I'm, he says he's a native of Kosala, a member of the, uh, of, of the lineage of the sun. And of the clan of the Shakyans who live on the bank, on the um, foothills of the Himavant or the Himalaya, the snow mountains. About his family, um, we have quite a lot of information uh, about the various members and so on. But what is important for our current knowledge is that he was the eldest son of a man called Sudodana who was the chieftain, we could say, of that community in the eastern province of Kursala. He he would have been the man who chaired the assembly, the assembly being uh, a thatched-roofed public uh, space, like a village hall, um, in which the affairs of the community would be discussed and decisions would be made. So he belonged to one of the richer families he would have been considered a nobleman. In other words, not someone who would be working or involved in trade in any way, but someone who was born into the ruling class. But remember, the ruling class now is overshadowed by the greater power of the the king in Shravasti, who really was in charge, who ruled that area. In the Pali texts themselves, we have very, very little information about what the Buddha did up until the age of 29. In other words, his thir- the first 30 years of his life are essentially a blank. We know that um, he was um, recognized as a baby, as having great- a great future, a great potential, either a great warrior or a great saint, but it's quite likely, I suspect, that most children born to the leading noblemen of the day would have been offered that sort of uh, you know, prophetic, inspirational future. So that doesn't really tell us very much. We know that about when, when he was a child, he must have been probably 12 or 13, um, he sat beneath a rose apple tree as his father was working in the... Uh, had had some business in the fields and he uh, slipped into a trance-like state. Um, This he recalls much later on when he's in a much more critical moment in his spiritual practice. But that's one of the few glimpses we get uh, of a teenage boy sitting beneath a tree in the shade and and arriving purely... (coughs) One almost feels accidentally stumbling across a different frame of mind to the one in which he was used, to, to, with which he was familiar. A frame of mind that is technically described nowadays as the first jhana, the first state of absorption in meditation. But again, that would be a description that would have come across, would, would have developed much later. The fact is that he entered a still and quiet and very um, agreeable frame of mind, but one in which um, his mental capacities of reason were still intact. In other words, he wasn't in a kind of mindless state, sort of spacing out or entranced by a single object, but he was still able to think clearly, and yet in a state of great stillness and calm. The next thing we know is that he's left home at 29. And this age of 29 is, I think, something that we have to take rather seriously. It's one of the few details that is both canonical and also um, uh, rather idiosyncratic. It's not just a ballpark figure, like they say the Buddha died when he was 80. But then you read elsewhere in the canon that lots of people died at 80. 80, therefore, seems to mean old, maybe very old. But 29 is rather too specific to just be an arbitrary figure um, tossed about. So I'm going to take that 29 very seriously and take that as one of the very few fixed points. So this then gives rise to the question, well, what did he do from age zero till age 29? We know that um, shortly before he left home, at the age of 29, he had had his first child. He had given birth to a son, or his wife, uh, Badakachana, had given birth to a son who was called Rahula another tiny little detail that seems to be something pretty incontestable. It's it's consistent with what follows. So if he gave birth to a son, let's say when he was 27, that still leaves a, a long gap unaccounted for. So I think the only reasonable thing we can do is ask, well, what would a person of his rank and his background and his position have been likely to have done in that intervening period, in his 20s, in other words. Now, fortunately, we have in the Pali texts um, thumbnail biographies of a number of his contemporaries, not monks, but uh, lay figures, whom he was close to for the rest of his life, who all followed a very similar career pattern. Now these people, I don't I'm not going to go into any detail here. <coughs> these people include the king of Kursala, Pasenadi, They include a man called Bandula, who was the eldest son of a neighbouring province to Shakya. They include um, a man called Jivaka, who subsequently became the Buddha's physician. They also include a character called Angulimala, who some of you might have heard of, who became a famous serial killer, who was converted by the Buddha. All of these men were more or less contemporaries of the Buddha. And what all of them have in common is that they studied at the university of of taxila. Now taxila, as I mentioned, is not in India, or India as we knew it then, but is across the border in Persia, or at the very edge of the Persian Empire. Taxila is also, as I mentioned, the next main point on the North Road. It's where all of the traffic would be heading. And it seems to have been the case that if you were a young nobleman of a prominent family in that area of North India, you would, if your father and your family could afford it, be sent to study in Taxila. Taxila, from what we know, offered an education in um, the ways of government, in military training, in um, religious uh, uh, practices which very often would have entailed um, certain things we would probably now call magic, uh, spells, divination but also uh, philosophy and probably the study of things like the Vedas possibly the Upanishads and probably also ideas that were just floating around in persia and greece at that time quite close to taxila there was in fact already long before alexander a greek community in fact one of the there's a very striking passage in the in in the Nikaya in pali where the buddha is having a discussion with a brahmin called asalayana and asalayana the brahmin is arguing for the uh, divine um, origin of human caste or class. In other words, according to the Vedas and the Upanishads, when Brahman, or God, created uh, the world, he appeared in a form uh, out of formlessness. He appeared in the form of what's called the Mahapurusha, the great person. And the great person then splits into four. The head becomes the priests, the arms become the, the kshatriya, or the ruling class, the body becomes the merchants, and the legs become the workers. That's the basis of the varna, or the caste system, even in India today. It's, it's a reflection of God's own creation, this, this, in the, in the, or this particular phase in the divine creation. And so the Buddha is discussing this with Asalayana and the Buddha says, but look, have you not heard of the societies of the Greeks and the Cambodians where there are simply two classes, that of the master and that of the slave? And both of those roles are entirely interchangeable. One day you can be a master, the next day you can be defeated in battle and turned into a slave. And likewise a slave, if their fortunes are good, can become a free person and a master of others. In other words, this caste system is just made up. There's no basis for it in other societies that we can observe um, in the rest of the world. Now this is telling... Because it shows that the Buddha was quite conscious and aware of how societies operated outside of India or outside of the Brahmanic culture of India. And the place where the, the places he actually mentions are in fact right next to Taxila. So it seems likely I feel, although there's no hard concrete evidence that as a young man uh, Siddhartha would um, have probably been taken by his father to the capital city. We know that the kings of Kursala would periodically summon their vassals and the king would then offer them probably some sort of ceremony, some sort of feasting perhaps and probably it was a good way to keep an eye on these people so it's quite likely that as a young man Siddhartha would have been introduced to the court at Shravasti, his capital under his king and in order to gain uh, any sort of uh, career or any uh, sense of promotion or Prominence in the society of his day it is very likely that his father would have sought some sort of patronage or sponsorship from the ruling court in Shravesty. As an intelligent young man that he clearly was it's therefore I think again quite likely that that intelligence would have been further refined either in Taxilla or in a culture influenced by the university there because of his role um, as a nobleman um, he would very likely have been trained in in military skills he might well during this period in his early 20s up to the age of 27, 28 he could well have performed some sort of government uh, role in Kursala either in the army or in what we would now call the civil service. But again, that's all speculation. Uh, It seems likely, but we have no hard evidence to say, yes, that was the case. At the age of 27, 28, um, he must have come back to Shakya because that's the time we know that he has his child. And again, the reason, again, it seems strange in a way that... Um, he would have not had a child for so long. He would have been married probably as a teenager. And it would have been likely, therefore, that he would have started having kids uh, probably when he was before 20 even. So it seems one explanation for this oddity is that from the age of 18 or 19 or so, he left Shakya, he went elsewhere to work, or to study, as I suspect he probably did. And only when he'd uh, completed a number of years of such work did he return to his homeland, married, had a child, and in that sense fulfilled his obligation to his family in leaving an heir, and then he split, then he left home. Now we do have in the um, Arya Pariesin Sutta, which is in the middle length sayings, a, a fairly clear account of the Buddha's renunciation. There's no mention whatsoever of the going outside the palace walls and seeing the sick person and so on. That's a much later uh, legendary feature. But he does describe um, uh, his, uh, a, a certain sense of despair. Um, I think the story of the four sights is um, existentially true. In other words, it seems that at this point, age twenty-eight, twenty-nine, 29, uh, he had what we would call an existential crisis. What is this life about? What's it for? What does it mean? And he then describes how he could, that one could never achieve uh, satisfaction by merely depending upon and accumulating the things of this world. And he lists about a dozen things, which are basically an inventory of his rural homeland. Uh, he says cows and horses and elephants and gold and silver and wives and children and slaves. None of these things you can actually, will actually provide you simply by depending on them, anything lasting or more true or somehow more real, something uncorruptible. The word he uses is the deathless, the ammata, something which is not prone to corruption and death and decay. And so he then decides, in his own words here, to seek the deathless, the uncorrupted. And that is the reason he gives for then leaving his homeland. And he doesn't, as the legend says, you know, sneak out at night on his horse. But he says quite explicitly that he tells his parents. He says, look, Dad. Um, look, Mum," And he says that his mother and father wept with tear-stained faces. And they were very unhappy with his decision. But nonetheless, he shaved off his hair, he shaved off his beard, he put on a yellow robe, and he departed from home life into homelessness. So we have the picture of a man who's not um, uh, just a teenager any longer, but a man who's had a fair amount of worldly experience, who's probably had... Um, or been exposed to some of the uh, the great thinkers and philosophers and others of his day um, has not found the answers to life 's questions through any, any of these things that he has done and he decides to make a break with it and adopt the life of a samana means like something like a wanderer. And India at that time um, had many such men and women. Uh, There is a a male and a female form of this word, um, those who have left home. And what that also shows is that the economy of North India had reached a point at which there was a sufficient surplus being produced that could provide for those who are not actively employed. This is an important point. You can't just go off and leave home without having access to food, um, shelter, medicine. Otherwise you probably won't make it for very long. So the Buddha's life coincides with an economic and social development in India where you move from a subsistence agrarian society in which people just live from one year to the next on the fruits of the land, but what, rather a society that is beginning to develop structures, mercantile structures, trade, um, banking. All of these things start to uh, occur around this time where there is a money economy Um, where there are speculators, investors, the building of great or relatively large uh, cities, although by our standards they'll still be pretty small. But nonetheless, an economy that allows two things to happen. One, the creation of standing armies, in other words, men who don't work productively but are necessary for the security and the expansion of state power. And secondly, Um, a a society of of young men and women who are able to devote themselves to philosophical, spiritual and religious matters without having to work on the land who are provided for by begging alms. So Siddhartha Gautama joined this itinerant community um, who sought insight, enlightenment, understanding, liberation, whatever word we prefer to use for that, and they used all of those terms, and set off on the open road. Now we also know that um, he didn't um, uh, stay around the area of Shakya itself, he headed south. He went down towards the Ganges, he would have crossed the Ganges, and headed into Magadha, which was the great kingdom to the south of the Ganges. And it seems that while he was in that Country, he um, embarked on his uh, religious and spiritual practices for the first time. Now, the texts only give us um, a description of two community or two kinds of practice that he did. He spent time in the communities of a man called Alara Kalama and another man called Udaka Ramaputta both of whom taught methods of of jhana, of deep concentration. And these concentrations were called, one was called concentration on the base of nothingness, and the other was called concentration on the base of neither perception nor non-perception. In other words, pretty subtle objects. And the aim of these practices was to uh, one pointedly focus the entirety of one's attention on nothingness or neither perception nor non perception. Don't ask me how to do that. And in doing so, achieving um, a state of deep absorption in which no Distracting thoughts or feelings or emotions would bother you anymore. You are in what is now technically called um, a formless state of mind. There are no, you're completely cut off from any sensory awareness. You're literally um, spaced out. You are in a highly refined, focused frame of mind in which there's no suffering at all, no pain, virtually no sensation. And yet the problem is that once you come down, as it were, once you leave that deep state of refined trance, you find yourself back where you started, namely in a suffering body, and you've probably got you know, pins and needles in your legs and a pain in your knee. So the Buddha said that he was not satisfied with those teachings, and he left. They didn't, therefore, res- resolve the crisis of his existence, the crisis of birth, of sickening, of aging and death. They didn't lead him to any insight or understanding of what this life was about. I think we also have to understand these these yogic practices, these states of great Samadhi and absorption, as features of the, the Brahmanic culture of his time, I'm sure most of you have heard of texts called the Upanishads. The Upanishads, which have been translated in English now for for many, many years, are somewhat philosophical texts that are based on the Vedas, the Vedas being the early hymns that the uh, Aryan uh, settlers of North India composed, uh, largely as aids to Uh, their relationship with the gods, who they believed it was necessary to placate and stay in harmony with the gods in order to uh, enable prosperity on earth. And so the role of the priests was very much that of making sacrifices and prayers and reciting mantras in order to keep the balance between heaven and earth. Now, the Upanishads, which occur some centuries after the Vedas, have got a totally different tone to them. They're far more personal. They have to do with what an individual man or woman can do in order to achieve uh, not just harmony with the gods, but unity with God, with a big G, or Brahman. So the Upanishads, um, for the first time in Indian uh, history, provide uh, methodologies, meditations, uh, a philosophical frame of thinking that present the world, as a, uh, or present life really, as an endless round of birth and death. This idea is already there in the Vedas, but it becomes very much more articulated in the Upanishads, so the worldview of that period was one in which men and women on all forms of life, animals and birds, go from one birth to the next driven by the force of their previous actions or karma. So that they go round and round from one realm of existence into another realm of existence until they meet someone like a great sage or saint who instructs them to turn their attention away from the things of this world and focus their minds on what is transcendent. And the first object of transcendence in this philosophy is your own true self, that part of you which is not identical with what you see and hear and smell and taste and touch that part of you that survives physical death and that part of you which ultimately is of the nature of God himself. And so here we have the famous uh, Indian doctrine of the unity of God and self or soul, Brahman and Atman. And the ways in which this would have been done as far as we can tell from the texts, is by um, disassociating yourself from your attachments and your identifications with the phenomenal world. And there's a famous passage in the Brhadaranyaka Upanishad, where the student is told to follow the instruction, "Neti, neti, not this, not this." In other words, when you're meditating and your mind begins to identify, let's say, with a feeling in your body, oh, I'm in pain, oh, I feel great, you say, I'm not that, I'm not this, I'm not this feeling, I'm not this body, I'm not this thought, I'm not anything to do with the sensory impermanent world. And through this process of meditation, you begin to become more and more um, attuned or identified with what you really are, which is this um, pure consciousness, awareness, this self that is not in any sense tied to the changing world of appearances. And the world of appearances is called maya, the world of illusion. So you, 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 you separate yourself from this, through doing meditation, until you're completely aloof, as it were, and identified with what is really real, namely your true self, which is identical with Brahman, or God. And Brahman is described sometimes as sat truth, consciousness, bliss, just pure knowing. Now, I think the the meditations the Buddha would have done, or Siddhartha Gautama would have done, would probably would have been in that sort of frame of reference. The concentration on nothingness, on neither perception nor non-perception, both seem to be heading away from the sensory experience and returning to something divine. Although that's not actually the words the Buddha uses when describing those practices. Having abandoned the um, practice of absorption... Uh, The only other thing we know the Buddha did, and again we don't know the the sequence in time, which one he did first and which one he did later, uh, is the practice of severe asceticism in which he describes only eating one grain of rice a day and doing all kinds of other sorts of uh, self-mortification practices which in a similar way to these deep states of absorption are very much about disassociating yourself in this case from the body and the demands of the body by trying to put up with all kinds of extreme pain you likewise can reach a state of detachment and equanimity in which you're no longer bothered by what the body's up to, if it's hungry well so be it If it's hot, so be it. If it's cold, so be it. So there's something similar in both of these exercises. What is similar about them is is identifying spiritual achievement with a kind of extreme detachment, extreme disassociation from the world and an identification with something that is transmundane not of this world, consciousness or awareness or God or something like that. But those practices too didn't have any effect. They too didn't resolve Siddhartha Gautama's um, existential crisis. So, and again, there's a very famous episode here, which is in fact found in the in the earliest text. Well, the Buddha says... Um, that, that um, likewise, in doing these ascetic practices, they did not lead him to the to what it, to the understanding he was seeking, and it's at that point that he remembers the episode as a teenage boy, I imagine it, where he's sitting beneath the rose apple tree, and he enters into a state of mind in which his he, he, mind is calm, it's still, it, 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 it's happy. And yet, at the same time, it's able, it, it, it's still functioning rationally. They still, there is still operative vichara and vitaka, are the technical words, which are something like thinking and analysis. So the Buddha then says, well, maybe if I tried that, if I, if I pursued that intuition that came across me as a child, maybe that would be the way to awakening, to waking up, to understanding. And so that's the point at which he then goes and sits beneath the famous peepal tree or bodhi tree and wakes up. That's what we're going to look at tomorrow. So that is is, is in a somewhat sketchy way um, a sense of of what were the conditions that precipitated the Buddha's awakening. Now, what, is, what I find quite um, inadequate um, is the uh, traditional account that all the Buddha did between leaving home and becoming the Buddha was deep states of trance-like absorption, asceticism of an extreme nature Um, and that, that actually is about it and then the business of sitting beneath the rose apple tree as a kid those three things alone do not strike me as an adequate explanation for what subsequently he woke up to it doesn't account for how when he becomes the Buddha, he speaks in this highly um, distinctive voice. He shows himself as a very accomplished dialectician. In fact, many of the passages of the Pali Canon, much of his teaching style is basically dialogic. He, he, people come up and say, well, Master Gautama, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What's your view on this? He's a person very um, adept in argument, in, um, in, in seeing the weaknesses of other people's uh, positions, of being able to hold an entirely consistent and yet highly complex and comprehensive vision that he's arrived at. And some of that you can see is an, uh, either an ironic or a playful commentary on the Upanishads or other philosophical ideas of the day. Some of it is just the articulation of his own genius. But where did that all come from? Was it something that uh, was the product of many years of thinking and debating, questioning, arguing, I sort of suspect it has to be, really. That even if we take the traditional account as it stands, he wouldn't have done these exercises of meditation and asceticism in isolation. He would have done so in communities. We have no sense from the texts of the kinds of communities he lived in, the sorts of people that were exploring these same questions with him. It's as though he just does one or two spiritual exercises, sits beneath the tree, and bingo, he's the Buddha. And this is why I feel also that the uh, fact that he may have been educated in Taxila with many of the men who subsequently became his lifelong friends and disciples, who we do know were there, at least sheds some light or gives us another possibility for where he... Uh, cultivated this extremely refined um, analytical mind. Of course, it's also the case that this awakening was a radical spiritual experience. Uh, and I don't in any way want to diminish the, um, the importance of that period and it may have been a week it might have been a month we don't really know but at some point he had he reached a crisis in his life he'd already reached one crisis when his worldly career seems to have come to a dead end and he leaves home becomes a monk and he then seems to have just reached another crisis where the spiritual religious options of his day likewise Fail to satisfy him, another crisis, and then he really is on his own. And it's at that point when all options have been exhausted that he sits down, and he's presumably he says to himself, "Well, I've got to figure this out. I've got to resolve this uh, this situation I'm in." And here, I think too we can see parallels for ourselves. And I wonder, as I've been telling this story, how that has reflected our own stories, our own search, our own quest, which again may well have started when we were very young, at least in a kind of intuitive embryonic form, questions that begin to become central to us as young adults different approaches we then explore either at school or university we join some religious group or the church or we become Buddhists or whatever and how in a way what is most crucial in this practice that we are doing here um, is the sincerity um, and commitment we have to the, the origins of our own quest of what it is that moves us most deeply within ourselves to to come on a retreat like this, for example. And to what extent have we too, perhaps, also gone to study with different teachers or read certain books or joined certain groups and at some point have felt that, "Mm, this doesn't really quite answer what I'm really interested in. We find that, once again, there's a, you know, a religious group can so easily become a, another kind of attachment, another kind of place we can feel secure and at home and perhaps rather proud of ourselves. And yet, no longer is it really addressing our core concerns. So I think the story of the Buddha's life um, is very much a kind of archetypal story, one in which we can see our own lives are refracted or reflected in some way, and from which perhaps we can also draw inspiration. We can also somehow identify with that process. And it's here, I think, that the Buddha's teaching is not reducible just to the things he said after he became the Buddha and then became codified as Buddhist doctrines or Buddhism. But rather, his life is telling us something. the The teaching is as much what he does as uh, is found in as much in what he does as in what he says. And here we come back to the beginning with that example from the life of Christ. So the story I've been telling is not just. I hope, of mere historical interest, but is actually a story of a person who, in many respects, is not that much different from us. He didn't beam down from the Toshita heaven and land, you know, get born from his mother's side and take seven steps and say, I am the world honored one. That is legend, that is myth. But actually, he was a young man in a society that was actually already beginning to collapse in its traditional ways, was being absorbed by a greater power, Korsala. He was being primed to become an important figure in that imperial society. He probably was exposed to ideas outside his own immediate world. And all of this, of course, is probably familiar to each of us, albeit in a very different setting, in a very different time, in a very different place. So I'm going to stop here today and tomorrow we'll look at the nature of this awakening. What was it that the Buddha woke up to? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit